0: You
1: are listening to The MEND Podcast. I'm Joe Roeder, and I spend my life on the water and in the field. As a fly fishing guide and outfitter, I have spent decades personally honing my skills and helping other people improve theirs. My goal is to help listeners learn from my mistakes and successes. This podcast is brought to you by Red's Fly Shop, the best place to get outfitted for your next big adventure.
2: Relaxed.
1: Cheers, boys. Cheers. Great trip in Campeche. Although we're not Campe- Campechanos? <laughs> Campechanos. Campechanos. Well, welcome. This is the Men Podcast. I'm here with uh, Bobby, shop manager Bob.
2: Here I am. Glad to be here. Talk about uh, some baby tarpon fishing. First time on the podcast. Second time on the Second podcast. On the Thank podcast. you very much. <laughs> sure, everyone remembers our uh, talk about Christmas Island a couple years ago. Still- yeah,
1: you know that thing actually. Uh, I think the listening on that's picking up now that uh, you know the island's open again. So, Bob, you're set to go to Christmas Island June 13th.
2: In June, yeah. Uh, Man, fingers crossed we're going to get there this time. Uh it really looks like we are. So uh can't can't wait to do that.
1: Now, how many times have you
2: had to reschedule this trip? Ah. Uh, I a number of times. Uh maybe 3 times. And you know, everyone else that's going too, the guests included. Um and so I think everyone will be pretty stoked if we finally get there. Um and it's looking like we will.
1: Yeah, I had to, uh, I canceled my May trip, and it looks like that flight might go, but I think we're both kind of feeling like a couple, let the lodge run a couple of groups of guests before Reds shows up, like let them work out the still, because I don't think the fishing's going to change that much. The fishing's always been good, even when every lodge was booked full every week. Yes. It was still great, so I'm not really worried about the quality of fishing, but we want to make sure we have some food Drinking water. The
2: boats are running. Yes. The guides are dialed in again. Yes, the guides... They've got sunglasses. Yes. Yeah,
1: Bobby's got a little... What's part of your... uh, This is unscripted, but... You're going to have to have a little guide care package. Each guest should bring a little care package for their guides. Oh,
2: yeah. Um, You know, we're going to have to bring a backup pair of sunglasses for you for the week. And if your guide doesn't have glasses... You give them your glasses in the morning because it's in your best interest for him to see, obviously. but
1: cheap sunglasses, you want your guide wearing cheap sunglasses?
2: I sure don't. <laughs> I want to catch more fish, bud. Um, but uh, yeah, sunglasses, you know, uh, if you can, bring another pair of boots. they're always going through their their waiting boots and they love uh, they love pants, you know, light lightweight pants to guide in and lightweight shirts. And with the island being closed for the last few years, and they haven't been getting a- any additional clothes from outside, so you'd you'd have to imagine they're they're going to be needing some uh, some new apparel.
1: Yeah. So you're
2: you got some old hiking boots laying around the house. You're going to bring for them. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to see if I can't get them a new pair of flat sneakers. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Sims. Yeah.
1: This podcast is <laughs> sponsored by Sims Fishing Products. <laughs> All right, Dallas, you better, you've been on the podcast a number of times, but uh, yeah, what do, you, what do you do here at Red's Fly Shop?
0: Yeah, I'm our uh, a scheduling coordinator. So if you're looking to book a trip, I am probably the guy you talk to. My job is to make sure that our clients are getting out with guides and that our guides are where they're supposed to be at the proper time and kind of making a, making a good effort to match our clients with our guides respectively, right? Every client's different and every guide's a little different. So trying to match that. Uh, match that schedule, match that feel for customer-client relations.
1: And if somebody books a hosted trip with Reds, chances are that's coming, every one of those is coming across your desk. Coming across my desk, whether it's via phone or email at some point, yeah. Yeah, so you're managing a lot of our travel logistics and the guide schedule. It's a big job. You're like the guide boss, man. <laughs> you tell the guides when and where to be. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, Dallas, uh, We just got back from a trip to Campeche, Mexico, first time for all of us uh, fly fishing for baby tarpon in Campeche, and I had always wanted to do this trip, and had always heard about it, and it sounded amazing, and just never got an opportunity to do it until now, and we did kind of a guy's trip, and uh, it was Dallas's first tarpon trip. Yeah. Bobby, yeah. you'd caught some tarpon in Ascension Bay. Yep. Yeah. But not this many. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So it's a tarpon-specific <coughs> trip, but this this podcast is, uh, we're probably better at, I think we'd all agree we're better at educating than entertaining. Let's, a little bit. Yeah. So we're going to try to, like, kind of stick to the nitty-gritty of, like, is this trip for you? And if you're going baby tarpon fishing, like, what are some of the the things we learned and kind of some of the hot tips, but... Uh, Dallas, run us through like the logistics, like uh, for a lot of folks, like Campage is interesting. Come at it from like, this isn't like a two week trip. It's not like a 10 day trip. It's not even like a, a week long trip.
0: Yeah. I mean, logistically this, this trip is appealing, especially so Bob and I both have little ones. So we've got a, a, a small family that's growing. So this trip logistically makes a lot of sense because you're able to the travel's not crazy hectic. You can get it done uh, relatively easy, uh, and you can fish for anywhere from you know three to six days. And we ended up doing I guess it'd be about four days of fishing. Travel wise, very easy. You fly uh, for us. We flew in from Seattle to Dallas, uh, and then Dallas into Merida, and then from Merida you grab a, a van ride. It was probably I don't know hour and a half. Yeah. Not not, not too bad at all into Campeche, uh, and then on our departure day we got a morning of fishing in got a van ride back from Campeche to Merida and then reverse Merida to Dallas and into SeaTac. There are a couple options you could go, I think it was Mexico City and then actually fly into a small airport just outside of Campeche. Seemed like that was a little more hectic of travel uh, and trying to go through customs uh, through the Mexico City and all that seemed a little more challenging than doing it in Dallas. Uh, So yeah, for those people that only... You know, they'd only have a couple of days, you know, logistically, if you're trying to fit in a five day schedule or maybe even a six day schedule, uh, this trip fit right in the the sweet spot. Uh, Three and a half days, four days of tarpon fishing. I think we got to see almost all of it uh, and had a really good time doing it. I mean, I think by the end we were we were pretty stoked uh, and kind of ready to be home a little bit. Uh, So, yeah, logistically, it was I don't know. I haven't traveled a bunch for destination
2: travel. I think it was What about for you. Good. Yeah, uh, fairly easy travel. Uh, you know, the Ascension Bay, everyone always talks about that one's got that super long, bumpy van ride that's a real pain in the butt and didn't have any of that. So, yeah, I mean, it was a long day of travel, but um, nothing was too out of the ordinary or or or, or really difficult. Um, so yeah, overall, I, I think the travel was great. I would have stayed another week. I loved it. I thought
1: that drive was easy. Easy man. drive, it like uh, yeah, we barely stopped. And man, the
2: airport in Merida, so nice. Very small airport. 12, you know, twelve terminals. I oh, mean, I mean, yeah. super easy.
1: That yeah. was pretty upscale little airport, man. Yeah. I've not been to that part of Mexico myself. I feel like we've been missing out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was kind of a quick hitter, it, it, and it's it's nice because, man it having that soul like i love lots of variety i mean you go to christmas island there's mass variety you go to ascension bay there's variety cuba's variety belize you know depending on where you're at ton of variety but like i gotta say it was kind of cool like we showed up there with just your tarpon gear we'll tie will unpack the whole gear setup don't worry people if you're like hey i'm only listening to this to know what flies to bring
2: yeah we'll get there eventually
1: <laughs> But just packing exclusively for tarpon really made the trip a lot easier, and also you could go on a four-day trip and focus just on tarpon and feel complete. Like, I yeah. would have stayed another week, too, but I felt like the trip was complete after three days. I was like, man, I'm like, I wasn't bored, but I was like, you felt very satisfied. You know, you had yeah. plenty of opportunity. We stuck some fish, you know, landed a handful. Um But you weren't spreading yourself thin, racing all over the bay, uh, or, you know, jumping from the mangroves to the flats, trying to pursue different species and jam a lifetime of fishing all into one week. It was like, you just go there, catch some tarpon, have a great time with your friends, get good at
2: your tarpon skills, you know? I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I got a lot better at just the repetitions on fish, fighting the fish, you know, what do you do when they jump? What do you do when you hook them? Um, which I thought was very valuable, and you would not certainly you could you can work on that stuff if you have a lot of the variety, but we were just so focused that I felt like you could try different things back to back and learn from your mistakes.
1: Yeah, it's not like we were jumping from a bo- eight weight bonefish rig to a permit crab to you know a tarpon fly and then screwing every one of those up equally well. Yeah. If you screwed the tarpon thing up, I felt like if I missed a strip or hook set or, you know, miss a red, a fish or a cast, I got another shot and I could immediately rectify it. Like I've done a fair bit of tarpon fishing, but man, I agree with you, Bob. Like we could all see our skills by day four, like we're super sharp, yeah.
3: Yeah. you know,
1: like if you're going to go to the keys or you're going to do like really high stakes tarpon fishing, I can't after going to Campeche, i can't believe i didn't go there sooner before i went and did some other tarpon fishing trips so that i could get good at a lot of these different skills um reading fish stripping cadences you know like Mm -hmm. we you know eventually we'll go through all of our we'll have kind of a hot tip off eventually but like um yeah i think you were talking about this but that stripping cadence can only speed up you know like You can't, I don't want to go too fast, I don't mean it like that, but you can't slow down your strip and get fish to eat. You generally need to get the fish to peel off with the slowest possible strip, and then you can gradually accelerate. But if you try to go the opposite way, if you get attract them with a very fast strip, You can't just slow down and get them to bite it with tarpon. It just doesn't make sense for prey to just give up. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Oh, you got me. I'll just stop and be devoured by you. (laughs) It doesn't really make sense to the fish. So there are some of these little intangibles that you just begin to do without really processing it like that. But you just through execution of seeing fish and a lot of sight casting there. I felt like we were all doing that stuff by, you know, day three, but didn't realize we were actually doing some of these things yeah. it just became innate
0: you know a certain correct there's just no distraction right there was no distractions to go and chase permit
2: or change what you were doing or any of that kind of stuff <laughs> or all of a sudden you see a barracuda and everything else stops yeah. you know it we were just after those target yeah
1: yeah and if yeah i feel like we all got really good at it uh yeah. Yeah, I guess we should probably just unpack the trip maybe chronologically and kind of go through our each day and kind of how it works. Just so people can follow along and see if this is a trip for you. Uh, If you're listening to this, like we can't recommend enough, like jump on one of our hosted trips. Um, Any one of us, especially Dallas and Bob, we run hosted trips down there where we're alongside you. um, Alongside you, not only fishing, but just leading the entire group and making decisions on behalf of the group to keep you efficient. So... Uh, But either way, whether you can find a host to date or not, uh, we want to help people realize that, one, this is an affordable trip. It's not Cuba. It's not the Seychelles. Logistically, it's not even Christmas Island. I mean, I think most working folks that, um, you know, they work hard, play hard, anybody can afford the Camp trip. So I think that part is really cool. It's a little shorter. So maybe you're with a spouse or somebody who doesn't want to, you know, go for seven nights and six days, you know, kind of that standard salt itinerary i mean the trip makes a lot of sense in that way and then the gear set wasn't real complicated i felt like you know like we outfit people for a lot of trips but man if we pack for this trip we pack super light pretty light yeah Yeah. um we had in order to stay on task we did a variety of different things like as far as uh, to reiterate flights From the U.S., you'll typically go from Dallas to Merida and then a short drive to Campeche just to let people know it's a one-day travel thing. It's really easy. Uh, But we did a variety of different methods. I carried on. I think you you guys all carried
2: on on the way down, right? We carried on on the way down. You have to check your rods, your tippet, your pliers. Joe learned that the hard way on the way home. Oh, boy, did I. Um, But – Yep, you gotta check those uh, rod pliers, tippet on the way home. Uh, Mexican uh, security does not like those items, so gotta check. Plan on checking a bag on the way home, but yeah, on the way down, uh, yeah, easy. We we just uh, we just fit it all in carry-ons, and um, and that was that was slick. That was real real easy to do. Not a lot of gear I brought. I mean, if you bring two rods. Uh, two reels. You got a couple dozen flies. I mean, that would be on the low end, right? But you could get it done with that. And uh, we, we, uh, man, I mean, a couple spools of tippet and that's about all you need in the pliers.
1: Yeah. We'll put a packing list in the uh, the show description. Then this, this podcast will also appear, you might be already on the blog article that this podcast will be embedded into. But yeah, I felt like, uh, you know, let's just, Let's run through logistics, and we'll kind of circle back to gear. But you, you know, going down. I mean, we all carried on, and I think our plan was sound. You know, as far as carrying on on the way down and then checking on the way back. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I carried my. You know, it was it was the double standards on that security coming back were insane. Yeah, yeah. Like I could have my reels, but I couldn't have my tippet. You know, it didn't like, add up. Yeah. It didn't add up at all. It was like they're doing their best. I'm not. You know, I'm not complanatory, but you yeah. know, like. When it comes to carrying on coming out of a foreign country back to the US, there's just
0: there's gross inconsistency there. Yeah. The other uh, thing to note there is I would say plan to carry on on the way down with a, with a back, with a, in the back of your mind, somebody out of maybe the, the two of you are going to have to check rods on the way back. So don't forget about that on the way down. Like for instance, yeah, Bob took the rod vault. So it was nice to be able to, him and I split the rod vault and we just checked it on the way back. So just playing for that on the front end. But I think carrying on the way down is the way to go very quick.
1: Yeah, as a pair, like assuming people are traveling in pairs, bit like a spouse unit or just a couple of buddies, uh, you guys did it right. Because carrying on on the way down is so nice. I mean, everything's faster. You show up at the airport, you get an electronic boarding pass, you don't have to wait in line and on and on. And then you have everything you need for the trip right there in your possession. Because our... We had a pretty quick layover in Dallas, and I—I'm always get a little bit nervous on check bags on those short right. layovers. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you guys did it right. I did it wrong. Um, I coming back out of uh, well, somebody got a sweet set of Sim saltwater pliers. out of the deal. I'm not sure which whether it was the lady that took them or her supervisor was eyeballing those things pretty good. Although I did have uh, I did have the state of mind to actually salvage the the sheath or the in the lanyard. Yes, from, I appreciate that. Yeah. You know, Bobby's plier sheath What happened? Your yours broke or something.
2: I have the Doctor Slicks pliers and they work great. They're an inexpensive uh option. But yeah, the sheath, uh I think I broke it in Christmas Island or ah uh, Ascension Bay actually. Jumping out of a boat to go chase some fish. Oh. I caught it jumping out of the boat. Yeah, busted that clip. Uh, busted the clip. It's got a plastic clip, uh which is the one thing I don't like about those. Yeah, so my pliers
1: got, my Sims pliers got nabbed, and then all of my fluorocarbon tippet got nabbed. I would never have thought that to be a a weapon. I didn't realize, um, as she was demonstrating to me how to strangle somebody with the (laughs) fluorocarbon tippet, um, I didn't realize it was such a dangerous commodity to have on an airplane. But I appreciate the nod to security. But coming back, yeah, you definitely want to have a plan. You don't want to carry on reels. Nobody had any problem with flies. Coming yep. back, um, but you don't want to carry on reels, tippet, pliers, um, or rods. And I know people listening are probably like, oh, Joe, you're an idiot. You carried on your pliers. It's not a problem in the States. Like I've read the T- no. TSA doesn't apply in Mexico, but I've read, you know, all the requirements and pliers are fine in the States. In fact, I'm going to go to the Florida Keys next week and it's no problem. Like I'll I'll carry my pliers on and, and everything else. But- and your new pliers on my new pliers on, yeah. <laughs> I might be borrowing them from Bob. Like, hey. <laughs> might have I borrow that shape with, with your pliers in it. Uh But yeah, I think an angling pair could have like, that makes the travel like, and it may sound like we're rambling on about this, but I think when it comes to just expediency and like you envisioning how fast and easy this trip is, like you're just showing up at the airport with everything, you're boarding pass electronic, you jump on the plane, you carry on all the way down, no big suitcase, none of that. You don't need flats, boots. Um, you don't need any of that bigger gear. You don't need jackets, that kind of stuff. Maybe like a light raincoat, but I, I'm not even sure I would take a raincoat in the future. I would just I get I never out. used it. Never once. Yeah. Uh, same. Steve
2: wore his every day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, maybe was- When the guides put them on, he puts them on. And when they're used to 100 degree days an 80 degree morning is a little cool.
1: Yeah. We should bring that back in the hot tip off towards the end of the podcast. Guy yeah, yeah. puts the rain jacket on, you put the rain jacket on. That was Steve's tip. Yeah, it, it was, It's <laughs> a good one. I think it was Steve one day, he put it on and I put it on. <laughs> I was like, you're doing it, I'm doing it. <laughs> yeah. I know it is for the, some of those boat rides, you could get splashed a little bit, but uh yeah, I think just, I really enjoyed the expediency of just the travel down. You know, we, we live, you know, Bobby lives three and a half hours away from the airport. So, I mean, our our departure day was kind of brutal because we did not want to go get a hotel at the airport. We wanted to just long ball it. So, our flight left at 5.30 a.m., and uh, so we were pretty much like a couple hours of sleep on the road. And I felt like just showing up at the airport and not having to check bags. is like it's it's a nice way to travel on the way down. But on the way back, you definitely want to have a little plan with your buddy. Um, I think that Fish Pond Dakota, the one that you had, is a great piece for like one or two anglers where you could carry it on on the way down and then just hand it off and check it on the way back. Yeah. Super easy. For sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Then as we, we dove into day one, so the hotel was really conveniently located. I mean, Campeche,
2: I was blown away by the city oh i love the city yeah. yeah uh the layout and it's right on the ocean there i should
1: have done some google fact checking and stuff about the history of that city because i feel like we all should have been there before like on vacation or like to see the mayan ruins and see the city like it's it's a such a neat destination that i'd never realized was even on the map Yeah. other yeah. than tarpon but the city is like equally cool to the
0: you know rivals the tarpon fishing. You could go spend 3 days in the city and not get bored one at all. Never leave the city. I mean it was it was cool to see the city. Interesting enough. It was like locals would come like Hispanics would come to that location as like a destination to go and see. Like they were you could see them taking fo- you know photos downtown and it was like it was very interesting. Like it was a place for people to come and visit, for sure. It's mm-hmm.
1: a native vacation spot. Yeah, very much yeah, so. for, for Yeah, for Mexican citizens, they will travel to Campeche to vacation, like, to give folks listening an idea. Like, it's a really cool city. There were very few Americans. I mean, we bumped into the minor league baseball player. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, what was that guy's name? Matt Salter? Uh, yeah. yeah. Google him. <laughs> yep. so maybe if anybody's a, a baseball yeah. fan, he was in the the Cleveland... Guardians organization, but now he's playing triple A baseball, yeah, yeah, level baseball. The Campeche you know, Pirates, yeah, for the Campeche. Yeah, I bumped an American dude from North Carolina, right? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah exactly so. right. That's yeah. the only American that we
2: bumped into in Campeche, isn't it? I believe so. Um, we saw some. Maybe European tourists, yeah, Um, yeah. yeah. They always the funny
1: clothes always give them away. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) yes. Europeans. Uh And he bumped into
0: us. He was like Americans. Yeah, Yeah, he
1: he heard us speaking. He was surprised.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, but it was very nice city, man. Like, I mean, like clean and safe and awesome food (laughs) and all that. But we should before we bore people to death talking about the city and stuff. But hopefully, you can hear that. Like, just from a vacation standpoint, like Campeche was was legit and definitely worth um worth visiting let's run through like what a day looks like uh we don't have to unpack all the days but like you know dallas you lead us off here like what what does a day a typical day look like as far as uptime runtime, time
0: you yeah know, that kind of thing yeah so um typical days for us we were starting i don't know bobby and i were roommates we were setting our alarm at about 4 45 in the morning. Breakfast was served at the hotel at five five you, thirty. You just scared like half the listeners off. Yeah, like four forty five. Four forty five. But you'll, there's you'll time for
2: to, there's time for an afternoon now. You'll, you'll learn to agree. You'll
0: learn to love it here in a sec because Shan's got the program figured out. <laughs> so you start breakfast, and then literally you're walking at five thirty. We're leaving the hotel to meet our guides at at five twenty eight. We're leaving the hotel to meet our guides at five thirty. You walk across the street from the hotel. The guides pick you up right there uh, at the, I guess you'd call it surf surf wall. Yeah, the surf wall. A couple sets of cement stairs that go right down to the boats. Our runs kind of seemed to vary, but they were anywhere from, I don't know, 15 minutes was maybe the shortest run up to 45. One of the guides, Juan, liked to always run a little farther. Uh, Very easy runs. I mean, you're only a couple hundred yards offshore. It was a relatively easy run. Most of the mornings you were fishing by... 615 you know maybe even earlier i mean you caught that first fish on our first day at 607 on your second cast (laughs) i mean it was crazy right it was a quick run so you're fishing um typically the fishing day started about you know 5 30 6 o'clock uh back to kind of that surf wall or the boat dock around two eating lunch somewhere in the middle there the guides provided a very nice lunch Uh, our lunches were awesome so your days are out six to two. The Shan special is you walk back your long walk of fifty feet back to the hotel and I think Shan was asleep by two oh seven for a nice <laughs> afternoon nap. Uh, and then we would typically go out and have a have a meal downtown somewhere uh, in Campeche. But that's kind of your typical day. Uh you are running around, you know, moving, I don't know, it seemed like every hour or so you'd move spots, jump around to a new spot with another ten minute run here or there. We were in I guess you'd call those pangas.
3: Yeah, ponga boats. Or ponga
0: Yeah, and, and panga boats. They were uh, they were great to cruise in. They seemed like they cut across the uh, across the chop no problem. Very comfortable for two people. Very yeah. Comfortable those are like
1: twenty three. Yeah, panga panga. I don't know. You know, we need to actually take out a little survey of the guides when we're there and ask them to pronounce. Hey, what kind of boat is this? Never asked. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you know. Uh, yeah. So we should before we get too off track. Dallas had some really good intel there and we are drinking med, med you, you know the Man. l the l is pronounced in medello i try to say medeo and then the sort of the it barman always says medello oh, yeah. <laughs> like give american uh but before we get too far off track we should unpack like fishing days i felt were quite full six to two Highlight highlight was in the morning, whether tides were high or low, because we saw the tides, even as little as four days, change quite a bit, the timing of the tides. Um, so. I was really surprised, because uh, a couple of times I just remember going back through some of the um, the backside of a couple of those bars, racing along the mangroves, and I think the last day we had to turn around and go way back around, mm-hmm. and the day before it was not like that about the same time. Yeah. So the tides... Regardless of the tides, um, I don't think that you want to try to, out- you can outsmart yourself in a hurry trying to choose saltwater trips based around tides. The weather, the attitude of the fish, the temperature, there's a lot of things that impact fish hunger outside of the tides. Now, I won't, if you're an expert on tides and you've lived in Florida your entire life and et cetera, Sure. Great, you know, tides for tarp and a permit and that kind of stuff. But there are a lot of other factors at work because the time of day that those tides shift, weather patterns nearby, there are too many factors. I think you go on a trip when you can go on a trip as long as you're not there on a terrible, you know, some type of extreme tide or something like that. But the mornings were definitely the hot time to be out on the water. The fish were snappier, they were exposed, they were out of the
2: mangroves. And we didn't have a lot of wind, I wouldn't say. It It sounded like we, we actually had a little bit stronger winds than they might typically have. Um, but I didn't find the wind to be a huge issue. It's But in the mornings, I guess what I'm saying is in the mornings, it was dead calm. And you Glass. could see those fish rolling. And, uh, and that's when, yeah, we were having our best fishing, I would say. And then as... I don't know if it was time of the day or if it was because that wind was coming up. Uh, But they certainly got harder to, not hard to see, but at times they were harder to see the fish rolling. And if the wind really did come up, then you would go in the mangrove sloughs and the channels and uh, get out of that wind. So it's not like it's going to, it's not like that wind came up and your day was over. You just changed how you were fishing. Um, which which I thought was pretty cool. But yeah, that, that morning up until, I don't know what it was, 10, 10 o'clock or noon, uh, was very calm. Uh, well, we
1: were fishing. I mean, we were throwing casts a couple. The first morning, I think he said it, by about 6.15. Yeah. We were throwing casts. I mean, that sun wasn't even in sight. I mean, it was still oh, before sunrise. Yeah, And uh, yeah, the morning, I mean, tarpon or crepuscular. Is that right? Say that again? Crepuscular. Crepuscular. Hmm. crepuscular. I'm just going to use that word. A lot. <laughs> Biologist
0: Bob, what's that mean? I'm
1: There's never. crepuscular. <laughs> There's diurnal. There's nocturnal. Crepuscular. Very active in low light mornings hmm. and evenings. Like a raccoon. Okay. Now a raccoon's probably more in the nocturnal realm. I don't you know. know anything else that's crepuscular. Crepuscular, dude. Maybe earthworms? Uh, I mean, I don't know. Like mallards? Mallards, man, ducks. <laughs> <laughs> deer. I mean, deer and elk would be dead. It's a great, yeah, good example there. But yeah, tarpon are very active mornings and evenings, probably because, you know, for a lot of different reasons. But that morning bite was really good. and Yeah, we would jam out of there. Uh, I mean, we were in the boats about 5.30 every morning, which I loved. I love early to bed, early to rise on a fishing trip. I think it keeps the nightlife in check. I enjoy the nightlife. I love having beers in the afternoon, like we are right now. Uh, but I love fishing more. Um, I really en- just embrace that opportunity to be out on the boat, hunting for those fish, searching for those fish. You know, hangovers not not acceptable. <laughs> um, you know, so I feel like when we're up at four forty-five, everybody's like, "Hey, let's you know, let's keep it in check." You know, we're here to fish. Doesn't mean we can't have a killer happy hour, which we did, which yeah. we'll get to in a minute. But we basically, like, if you're listening to this podcast. We jump in the boats right as you can see. You, you basically jam. I mean, all the boats are outfitted with 75 or 90-horse engines, all these pongas, and we just we haul. And you might run as little as 30 minutes. You might run. Uh, the last day, we ran down to the marina and fished for some local local fish. We ran about 20 minutes. But you might run an hour and a half, and, and the guides are going to move. But the nice thing about it is you're not hitting wave chop it's all protected it's very calm we're deep in the gulf on the west end of the yucatan they don't typically see big sea swell there i thought the rides were really peaceful um and relaxing you know i didn't need a back adjustment you know when i got home right unlike i've been in baja before and man you just get the snot beat out of you making those big runs um but yeah we zip out across glassy water, and it was really glassy till about 9 or 10 a.m., and then that wind would come up, and those fish were just rolling and rolling and rolling all morning. It's so exciting seeing their fins and, you know, getting in front of a school, and like, oh, man, there's a group over here, and there's a group over there, and the guides are pulling the boat and trying to intercept these groups, and one minute you're pulling towards one school of fish, and then another one pops up, you know, closer, yeah. and you're repositioning for that, but that offshore fishing really dominated the mornings, and then it seemed like every day about 10 a.m. that wind, that sea breeze would come in. Not a bad breeze, like five to ten miles an hour. Yeah,
2: but just a little, just a little ripple on the water, and uh, yeah, and those
1: fish would stop
2: rolling. And then,
1: uh, well, I mean, these are baby tarpon. Our, our target range is basically 10 to 20 pounds on these fish, but those fish are really moving back in the mangroves for you know protection, security, food. A uh, lot of different reasons they're going into the mangroves uh, during the day,
0: but they would get really tight in that brush midday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're beating we were, the brush. We were talking to Fernando on whatever day it was. Steve and I. Fernando was saying you probably could stay out later. The the fish become harder to see, and they're still probably rolling or migrating out there, moving around. A, they're harder to see, and B, that tide starts changing, so polling becomes very difficult. Oh, because mm-hmm. the water's deeper. Well, and there's a there's a the Current. boat's moving, the current's moving quite a bit, right? So depending on the angle of the fish, it's like you just can't pull and gain on them because they're they're moving so fast when they're rolling. So it's like it just becomes you weigh so much more on using the motor, which then spooks the fish. So it's like it just becomes mm. it becomes more just difficult. More just yeah, as a guy.
1: So at that, and that was probably exclusive to our week because right. obviously the tides are going to happen at different times, right. but i can understand that about why that got tough then but i thought the mangrove fishing was killer i mean we went in there and beat the mangroves up did some blind casting pounded it against the mangroves little sight casting yeah little blind casting the last
2: day dallas and i it was a low tide so the the water wasn't in the mangroves it was in the lagoons near the mangroves and man he took us deep in that one and it was like channel lagoon, channel lagoon, channel lagoon. I mean, it was like it was, ma- it was like machete action. Oh, we were in there seven lagoons deep, and uh, these fish were just rolling, and uh, you could see them, you could cast to them. It was tight casting. Um, it was nice. We were using that that uh, badass glass, a little bit shorter rod um, in the mangroves, but uh, very fun in the mangroves. Um, very different than when what we were doing in the mornings.
1: I feel like the mangroves are like, you know, people listening are like, oh, I love hopper fishing for trout. And you're like,
2: what if the trout were 20
1: pounds and jumped like <laughs> hell and attacked your fly, like, with a vengeance? Yeah, like Yeah. And they're, I mean, tarpon are beautiful. They're clean. And they, I mean, they're just such an incredible sport fish. That mangrove fishing is like, I mean, trout have my heart. I mean, I like fly fishing. I like throwing bugs. I don't even care for steelhead fishing as much as I used to. I like trout fishing. I I like, you know, that that has my heart, but I'll tell you, man, that tarpon fishing in the mangroves, like when you take like a little tarpon toad, or like you guys did, you guys fish surface. We got them on the
2: gurgler. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So anyway, pitching around the mangroves and, and sticking these fish is insanely fun, but yeah, tell us about the fishing, uh, I mean, the equivalent of a dry fly for tarpon.
2: Yeah, well, we were in that, in one of those deep mangrove channels and uh, in very tight quarters in that spot, and uh, we had been casting at these fish, We I think we hooked a few, but we could still see them, they weren't being real bitey, tried a handful of different flies, different colors, et cetera, and finally it was like, well shoot, let's try the gurgler. And they were servicing a lot. And they were, yeah, they were rolling still. Yeah. And, uh, man, it wasn't very long. We tied that gurgler on, I mean, just a few casts. And I got one right away. Yeah. You were using that and, Taylor uh, trash fly. Yeah, the mm-hmm. Southern Culture on the fly. yeah. S-C-F-O. Right? S-C-O-F. S-C-O-F, Southern yeah. Culture on the fly. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that thing, and you got to fish it like a mouse. You got to... You got to wiggle that rod tip to give it that action. That was key, I thought. Hot tip. Yeah, I, I fished it for a while, and I was like, Bob, this thing. Or you were not just fishing, it like yeah. fishing like a popper. I was
0: fishing like a like I was bass fishing. I was fishing like a popper, and then I was like, Bob, how are you? <laughs> it, you got to give yeah. it that give it that wiggle. Yeah. yeah. What does the wiggle sound like? <laughs> In my head, that's what. It like. And that I, I was because the then you
2: hooked you hooked uh, two, I think two right after, and that. then landed the one. Um, and, uh, yeah, but that was pretty cool. Yeah, Um, very cool. I was, you know, you always bring those in your box, right? You're always envisioning, like, oh, I'm going to get them on the gurgler. But you're just having too much darn fun catching them on a a standard subsurface fly. Yeah. Why are you going to stop your your day and, and switch? But, um... So anyway, it was pretty cool to see that thing work. and uh, Luckily for us, they were smaller baby tarpon.
0: Yeah, If you were to land anything with the lagoon that we were oh. fishing, if it was over 10 pounds, there's no, no way. So
2: what was the lagoon the size of a house? Was it oh, the size of a... Much smaller than that. Okay. Uh, you know, like a mini golf course? It was like one hole of a mini yeah. golf one course. One green. Yeah. About yeah. the size of a swimming pool. You oh, know, so this it's, isn't a lagoon. It's no, a this was... Pond. Pond. <laughs> yeah, it was small. Yes, because we had pushed we just all roll. the way through a number of them, fished for these tarpon through lagoons, through channels, and we were like at the last spot you could access. Yeah. Um, and it was like almost like catching fish in a barrel because we had pushed them all the way to the end. <laughs> You know, they didn't have anywhere to go. <laughs> yeah. In order to get out, they'd have to swim right under the boat.
0: Yeah. Um, and they're not doing that. No, no. Well, and the, wa- the water is so low, right? So they can't go into the mangroves except for two, a little two bit. Two or three That was back. the last day. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that, yeah, tide. that tide, tide was
1: way different on that last day. Yeah, I could I not believe how extreme was... So you guys basically corralled these helpless tarpon back. Yeah. <laughs> we let them go. You know, it was okay. <laughs> you think they were like, "Hey Frank, you know, bite this fly a couple of times. These guys will be happy. It's your turn." Yeah. No, i I was blown away. I mean, I was absolutely blown away by the vastness of like the tarpon fishery down there. I mean, no, like, you look, you look at a satellite image of that area, and we did not fish the area I thought we were going to. Like, I thought we would run from Campeche. I was just kind of looking at the satellite image. I'm like, oh, man, it's, it looks like the most significant lagoons and mangrove, you know, opportunities are going to be to the west. We didn't go to the west once. No. <laughs> we went <laughs> to the marina. <laughs> yeah. yeah, to the marina. That's the only place we yeah. went. Uh, But yeah, we went kind of that northeasterly direction every day, and I just could not believe the vastness of it. I mean, I don't want to hype it up, but it exceeded my expectations. I mean, I had been built up quite a bit by guests of Red's that had fished with other companies or other travel purveyors and gone to Campeche before and uh, always came back raving about what fun they've had and not like... In and not bragging about it, not you know, like hyped up, no arrogance, no like, whoa, look what I caught, you know. No, it was like they come back from Campeche, and like for us, the fishing was great, but I kind of have a hard time putting my finger on exactly what the best part of that trip was because. That that dining scene was really really great. Like I thought that was a really nice change instead of eating at the lodge every night family style, which can be fun, but you don't really get to experience the city and the night, you know, not, we're not staying out late, but you don't really get to experience that cultural flavor uh but we ate at different restaurants every night and it was so much fun. I mean, the stories we have, free snacks, dude. Oh yeah. <laughs> So, let us, let us say this, like, in Campeche, very little English speaking uh, in Campeche. Yeah, very limited. The three of us are terrible in Spanish. Thank goodness Steve is, you know. Pretty good. Pretty good. He's conversational. And uh, Tony wasn't bad, too. Yeah. We know enough to order at restaurants and communicate and get by. Like, that, that was no problem. I don't want anybody to be intimidated, but... You definitely, it was a fun experience being in some place where you had to make a few decisions and figure out how to tone back your Spanglish and your English
0: to communicate your point. And we yeah, had, like when
2: we tried to get a haircut at the barber. Yeah, yeah the haircut you know? is a great example. <laughs> or we tried to
0: get fish, or chips and salsa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we got Dude, there's so,
3: many.
0: <laughs> there's so many funny
1: things that happened. Yeah, Tony... We were at Lapa Lapa, kind of a sports bar in Campeche. I think that was the first night. Yeah, was, Tony says, oh, I'll take care of the ordering, boys. We're just going to get some appetizers. We're going to have a beer. And then we're going to go to the real restaurant, which was La Pigua, yeah. which is way fancier than I thought it was yes, going to be. very like, fancy. Very high-end. Yeah. Not expensive, but very high-end. Yeah. Like, I mean, we were, we were underdressed for sure. But um, yeah, Tony says... I was actually going to get the chips. You know, I've been working on Duolingo. I got like an (laughs) 18-day streak going. I'm going to take care of this. Tony says, no, Joe, I'll get it. Orders those nachos, dude. Well, well, we were after after chips and salsa. Chips and salsa. And
2: some beers. Yeah,
1: We wanted a little thing of guacamole and a little thing of pico de
2: gallo. And what came back? It was a, a platter of nachos. There must have been two pounds of cheese, <laughs> pound of chicken. I mean, it was the size of a cookie sheet. Two of got them? We got two of them. <laughs> Dude, we didn't even need dinner. <laughs> there were six of
1: us. We he he tried to order like a few chips and some guy. He got two plates of nachos six of us didn't even get through the two mountains no. of nachos. No. And we never went out to dinner like we planned. <laughs> back to the hotel. <laughs> yeah. That Lapa Lapa place, I would totally go back there, man. I would go back there and just get beers, but I, I don't think I'd go for that mountain. And nachos Montagna. Yeah. Man. It was like crazy. Yeah. That was really fun. And then uh, they have a histor- that historic district, which we... We totally – this is why you should go on a hosted trip now that we've gone down there and sussed all this out. Because, dude, the way we walked – so there's a famous oh. area of Campeche called 59th Street, which is like in the the, the most coolest historic cobblestone street from like – I mean, that architecture is like from the 1600s. Yeah, the late 1600s. Gorgeous. I yeah. mean, yeah, I mean – The old
2: wall is still there surrounding the old city that they built to protect from pirates. Uh, Do you remember the pirates? Lorenzo? Yeah, Lorencio. Lorencio, yeah. uh, Yeah, because the pirates kept raiding them. So what'd they do? They built a wall, and it's still there today. It's a
1: UNESCO World Heritage Site. Mm -hmm. And I I went and kind of did a little bit of reading um, after we got back, but... Yeah, it's the UNESCO World Heritage Site, and that's we had dinner in a World Heritage Site every night yeah. with no tourists. It, we were we were the, we world were the tourists. Tourists. <laughs> tourists. Everybody else was like, "That's where you would go if you lived in Mexico. You would go there to visit 59th Street and see Campeche," which I just thought was such a treat. Yeah, it was really no cool. panhandlers. No. I mean, a few people trying to sell you a few They're things. Selling some stuff. No, I mean like no homelessness. Very clean city. Like I was really impressed by
2: and, and small too. I mean, we we walked down there and we have a beer at a place and then go to the next one and man you got to watch out for those free snacks i tell you they just keep bringing those snacks and (laughs) if you don't tell them to stop you're you're we're not having so every night
1: (laughs) we need to like yeah we need to unpack this and then yeah we got to get to gear and hot tips too but uh but what i was going
2: to say is they i mean we were there just for a few days and by the second or third day the guy, the guys, the vendors were already recognizing us. Yeah, Super and small, uh, small you town. Know, they're like, "Oh, same as yesterday." You know, mango margarita for Bob? Yes, yeah. <laughs> and, uh... <laughs> and recognize you
1: like in the most complimentary of senses, not like, <laughs> "Hey, you know, like you know, like I've been to Tulum and Cancun and you know, Cabo and other places in Mexico and." Yeah, Campeche was just a little different. It was like very—I mean, the oh man—it was like very well mannered. It wasn't like, "Hey, señor, you know, good deal, you know, free drinks." Blah, blah blah. Yeah, not pushy. Yeah, not pushy. The pushiest thing was the free snacks. By the, <laughs> the they had the one young man that could, like, that could speak Amer- English. He yeah. could speak English, and they had him out there just saying free snacks to anybody who looked like they could speak English. <laughs> and he said, "Hey, we got free snacks." We thought it was such a joke. We're like. You know what? Let's take him up on this. Yeah. We sat down and we had that that Mayan that pumpkin seed Mayan appetizer.
2: Yeah, kind of like hummus, but but pumpkin seed. Oh, fantastic. And then we
1: had the uh the jicama. Yeah. Like this pickle wasn't beets. Pickle, yeah, this wasn't like some cheap, you know, it wasn't chips and peanuts. <laughs> yeah. This was like really unbelievably great appetizers and they got their money's worth out of us by the time we left. <laughs> <lived. laughs> we stayed there a while. Yeah. You know, I think that was also part of the fun. Like I said, it's hard to put your finger on. And I'm smiling thinking about it right now, but it's hard to put your finger on. It was so fun. But we were up at 59th Street about three o'clock every day because we got done fishing at two and we didn't really want to do the nap program. I mean, we were early to bed. I didn't really need a nap, you know. We're in bed
2: by nine.
1: Yeah. I mean Shan was exhausted. I mean, all that fishing it's fifty percent of the time he had to stand in the boat, he only got to sit fifty percent of the time. Shan's kind of a kind of a kind of a bear. Shan uh, can nap
0: standing up though. I mean he can get <laughs> yes. a fifteen minute nap, no problem.
1: But we were down at 59th street and the first day there, uh, you know, the first night I went to Lapa, Lapa, and then the second night or the second afternoon we're like, Hey, we gotta get up today. We've heard about this every That's the other thing is we would ask the locals, like, hey, where would you eat? And those same restaurants started to come up again and again and again and again. We narrowed it down to about, you know, several restaurants, about five restaurants. But when we got up there at 3 o'clock, I guess that would be after our first day of fishing, it was a ghost town, and we're like, this is pretty quiet and pretty, you know, not real. Like, it was neat, but it wasn't, like, intriguing. Man, by 6 or 7 p.m. when we left...
2: It was hopping. Mm-hmm.
1: Really yeah. fun. Yeah, Really, really fun. And we fun. weren't
2: there on a weekend. It sounded like the weekend, so it would get a little rowdier later. <laughs> I'm not even sure I'd use the word rowdy. We stayed in, on our last night until maybe 10 p.m. Yeah. And it was it was busy down there, uh, but not loud and not, not crazy by any means. But people were having a nice time. A I felt like on and, average...
1: It felt like on average, and this is just on a city street, people were dressed better than us. Like, we were just wearing fishing clothing. I mean, you know, nice, clean, pretty straightforward tourism clothing. But, uh, like, you could tell the people were going to 59th Street for kind of a lot of them for an occasion, which Mm -hmm. I thought was just super cool. Like, it really complimented the city well and, and how neat of a spot it was. But, yeah, the food and drink was awesome. The Campeche trip, if you join one of our hosted trips, we'll take you to the restaurants that we have found to be just excellent great food great seafood um i mean what do we have we had snook we had snapper I had a whole octopus it was great yeah you had the octopus it was spectacular yeah um uh at la ricova la ricova that one of our favorite one restaurants in that restaurant we, we sat in the street and i was like oh it was a neat place you know the waiters were dressed real nice and stuff when I went in there to go to the bathroom, I'm like, "Holy smokes!" I was afraid. I was afraid yeah. to see the bill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was very fancy. But so. I thought the average entree was about 25 bucks. Um, it, you know, based on my like, you know, mathematical deduction from the peso. You know, everything's in pesos. But um, I thought everything was super affordable. I, I didn't think I got gouged once. I think everybody was super kind. It, it, one of the coolest places I've been in Mexico. Very, um, yeah. Yeah. The only place that is even remotely similar is Loretto, Mexico. And that place is like, I mean, that's a very popular destination spot. Lots of people own, lots of Americans might own second homes or condos and things down there. And so it's, it's not quite as enriched in the kind of the Mexican heritage as Campeche. But uh, yeah, different restaurants every night, um, travel hosts. We have a very good plan that we'll walk people through. Our tastes are a little bit different than Shan's. He's one of the other travel hosts, which I'm going to get a kick out of. He's in like one of the world's best places to eat seafood and doesn't like fish.
2: Doesn't like fish.
1: <laughs> won't, he, won't touch octopus. Won't it touch it. it yeah. Not a big lobster fan either. No, none of it. He loves, loves it. If loves, it's in the loves ocean, his, no. Loves he likes to catch them and put them back. Yeah. He loves steak and chicken. Yeah. Yeah. He loves, he's a good sport about it. He, he, no, he goes, goes
2: along with
1: <laughs> Uh, well, let's let's unpack uh, gear and then let's rally through hot tips until we're blue in the face. Um, yeah, Bob, you, you're a shop manager, Bob. You handle more... Ta- I, I'm going to make a conjecture here. I don't have statistical evidence to back this up, but I would venture guess that you sell outside of the state of Florida. Okay, I'm going to like... That's off the bat. That's outside <laughs> the belt curve you sell more saltwater tackle to people
2: than any one person in the country. That's, that's a statement right there. Uh, maybe so, but uh, yeah, I feel like I'm Did pretty go, well versed on it at it, this point. Yes. It
1: goes across your desk. So like, yes. it's it's catalog orders, it's live chat, it's email, it's, it's stuff that gets escalated. Hey, you know, like one of our staff that are great, like, hey, I need a second opinion, Bob, this person's going to the Seychelles, they need a GT line. beginning cast or here's the rod you recommend you like you've got an answer like boom 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 yeah yep what you give us the rundown on like what you would say is the ideal kit yeah like let go go bare minimum bare bones and then i want you to go like all the way to the top sure
2: well uh we were all using nine weights i think nine weights the right the right rod for the trip uh you can cast far if you need to and uh so anyway nine weight rods um and we brought everything uh from echoes and reddington's all the way up to fancy stuff they all work um bare minimum you need a nine weight rod a good reel these fish do pull um they're not going to run 200 yards but they are going to pull on you and um and so bare minimum you need a, a nine weight rod nine weight reel A good line is obviously important. There were times we were having to make decent casts. Um, And so we liked the the Flats Pro, we liked some SA uh, Infinity line, the Grand Slam line's a good one, Uh, but I think we all like that Flats Pro uh, Rio quite a bit. So nine weight rod.
1: Yep. That quality could vary. Anywhere from 200 bucks to 1200 bucks. It doesn't matter a whole lot. The more you spend, the more you get. Yeah, and if but, you had,
2: go ahead. But
1: lines are like,
2: Gotta that's have a, good a fix. So yeah,
1: mm-hmm. I've always felt like for, especially when you get into those higher caliber rods, when I, when I say higher caliber, I mean heavier weights, start with the line and then reverse engineer the rod that will throw the line. Because the line's pretty much fixed. It's a Flats Pro or a Grand Slam. Yeah. you're, you're Yeah, you're going to run those two lines. I felt like, because I'm going to take my wife on this trip next year, Great trout caster, not as good with the heavy stuff. Um, in the open water, and outbound tropical would be okay. In the mangroves, it would be a disaster.
0: Yes. A shooting yes. head would be
1: really nice in the open water because yeah. you just need to get it 10 to 20 feet out in front of the school and strip it. But yeah, the lines were pretty much fixed, and if people are on a hosted trip, you're saying they could bring one rod if they were on a
2: hosted trip. Yeah, if you're with a buddy who also has at least the one rod, right? You need at least two rods for the boat. What if, heaven forbid, something breaks? Um, I did that. I Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ideally, you each have two rods. I, we all brought two rods. One of them went had a floating line on it uh, that we used a good chunk of the time. Most of the time, if you're just going with the one rod setup, you're going to bring a full floating line. If you... Uh, If you already have a rod, if you're looking to to go all in on this, you bring two rods. That's what I would recommend, two rods. One has a floating line. One has that uh, Flats Pro with the six-foot intermediate tip. And we like that for in the afternoons when that wind would come up. You get a little bit of seagrass up on the surface, Uh, just some scum, stuff like that. Not a lot, but enough that your fly would be getting stuck in it your leader would get a a little grass on it and you just worry about the presentation at that point so having that slight intermediate just to get that fly below the surface uh get your leader below the surface i thought was was very beneficial and it punches good uh into the wind should you need to do that so having two rods two nine weights one with full floater one with that intermediate tip would be the ideal setup Um, and then I think you'd be, be covered, you know? Yeah. And then, uh, leader, leader, uh, what were we running? 40 pound, 40 Uh, pound, just straight 40. Uh, if you want to get fancy about it, you can run a shock, uh, leader where you have, um, uh, what was it? A foot of 40 and then five feet of 20 pound for that shock. That little bit more, um, uh, it's, it stretches a little bit more, um, and some guys prefer mono for that. Some guys prefer floral, and then uh, you would have another foot and a half or so of forty pound, because those tarpon they don't have teeth, but they've got a pretty rough mouth plate, and so they will uh, they will ding up that leader. And it was sometimes it was every time we were switching that out, or at least cutting off a few inches and retying, because um, that uh, that those fish do turn tear up that that six or that 40 pound section. Um so anyway, that'd be a little fancier. Uh or you can just run straight 40 pound. We did try going to 30 pound. I don't know that it made a difference. We the fish uh, were so bitey. It, yeah it didn't matter. Didn't matter. Yeah. Uh we did lengthen at first I think we were running more like five or six feet a liter and then I think we did try a little bit longer. I i don't know that, that helped uh to get the fish to bite but when you cast in front of them there were times where say you overshot the school and then you were you were pulling your fly line in front of them i think they they didn't necessarily like that they, they didn't did spook yeah. i wouldn't say they spooked
1: no they disappeared man <laughs> but they turned around and they went the other way you know so
2: having that little longer leader just to give yourself a little breathing room on that cast was nice um and a variety of flies, right? Uh, I like the weed the weed guard on the flies. Those are hard to tie. If you're tying them yourself, you can do it. Um, not all um, sold tarpon flies have have that weed guard, but uh, we have a handful that, that we carry and, and uh, we would recommend to you. I assume Joe will put those in a gear list for you. And- um, Especially for mangroves. Especially for mangroves, because you're going to cast into the mangroves It's inevitable, the best caster, you're going to hit the mangroves. Because you want those flies to be, you're you're putting them in a hole in those mangroves, sometimes the size of a five-gallon pail. So, you know, just the wind kicks or 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 just, you know, anyone, whoever's a good caster or not, you're going to end up hitting the mangroves. And uh, getting that fly out of the mangroves uh, helps a ton immensely uh, with those, those weed guard flies. Um, when you're in the open water, ah, it, matter. it doesn't really matter. Um, you get some of that seagrass up on the surface, the, the weed guard helps with that too, but, um, definitely have some some weed guards in the box. And I, I think you could get by with two dozen flies. I mean, we didn't lose a lot of flies. We didn't really, a few of them got, got torn up by the fish, but, um, not, not too bad, really, in the scheme of things, for how many fish we were hooking. Um, especially if you're diligent about changing
0: that. Yeah, if you of changing that leader that gets kind of chewed up, yeah.
1: Yeah, just to review, like we're talking about 40 pound test, not because the fish are strong, but you, I mean, like if you go to Florida Keys, you're gonna fish, you're gonna land giant tarpon on 20 pound test. Right. Because they have shark issues and those fish are, I mean, the migratory tarpon can be so big and so powerful. You need a breaking point in there or you're going to break rods or hurt yourself at some point. For the baby tarpon, we use 40-pound because their mouth plate, like you said, is so sharp and so hard that they will jump or pull, and they will just literally cut the line. And so if you can use 20-pound, forget about it. They're going to cut the 20-pound the first time they shake their head. Yeah. So the 40-pound is for abrasion resistance, not just strength. Yes. Yeah. Yes. For anybody who's kind of new to like tarpon fishing, yeah. Um, and, you know, I in the intro, you know, you probably heard some of this, but, like, this is a really good trip for beginning saltwater anglers that want to get some reps on tarpon. Oh, like, hands down. Yeah, yeah, it's great. So you're going to learn, like, I mean, what a great week to be able to go, especially on a hosted trip, because we'll do some demonstrations on non tying and leader setup, and we'll make sense of a lot of this kind of the static that you're hearing here. It'll all make sense when you sit down side by side with the host. and talk leaders so to speak dallas hit clothing
0: yeah uh well we kind of tried a big array of different things but we found and this was kind of dependent i guess pants a lightweight pant i mean when we were there it was in the 90s fairly humid it was 110 the week before 110 the week before so warm afternoon so a very lightweight pant the sim super light was what i wore the whole time there for the most part steve did tend to wear shorts Dude, Those how. legs haven't seen the
1: sun since he lived in Montana 25. <laughs> he didn't 25. even get
0: sunburned. I don't know how. I would probably recommend pants if you're a shorts guy. It's because so reflective, dude. <laughs> shorts were good. I, we were wearing solar flex shirts of some sort. Uh, we, we tried out the new Sims ones that Troy hooked us up with. Shout out to Troy. Uh, those were fantastic, but making sure that you were covered, it seemed about at 10 or 11 o'clock, the sun was right above you, and you were you were cooking. It uh, got hot. It got hot. So... Uh, making sure you've got the right layer of protection. Shoes was kind of across the board. You were wearing a boat shoe of some sort by Sims. You were wearing a boat shoe. I tend to wear flip-flops and was just taking them off when it was my turn to be up on deck. Shoes
2: or not, I could go either way. And you were taking them off because the line gets Tangled.
0: Yeah, and I tended, I I found that I actually really liked being able to feel uh, the line under my feet. I could see if I was on deck for too long, your feet would get fatigued long-term. So I could go both ways, but I liked being able to feel where the line was at if I was standing on it when I was shifting and doing that kind of stuff. But um, hats, obvious, sunglasses, I think we were almost all wearing either Sims or Costa Costa Green, man. Yeah, Costas, yeah. Green lens, needed it. I did bring a rain layer. I did wear it one day when we did our long run. Probably wasn't 100 percent like a necessity. You could definitely. It sounded it
2: down. they they were saying that it might rain on you. Uh, the later end of the year, you get later towards uh, in April, May, and even June. You know, you do get some of those afternoon rains, which. It sounded like it could be good for fishing. It wasn't a bad thing for the fishing, but um, yeah, you might want to have a rain layer for that, I guess. Sun yeah. gloves. I was wearing a sun glove. I found it
0: nice when you were landing some of those fish to have. I like that. a sun glove as well. A little bit of protection on your hand when you're mouthing the tarpon, or when the line is zipping out there a little bit. Uh, you don't wear sun gloves. Steve didn't wear sun gloves.
1: No, I uh, you know, my my two cents on clothing is shoes wise. I don't like my toes getting sunburnt. I don't like I used to go barefoot all the time. I feel way more athletic and confident moving around the boat. I mean, tarpon fishing can be a damn athletic sport. I mean, you get those long, tough shots on two o'clock when you gotta shift your feet, make a powerful long back cast into the wind at a moving school. I like to be able to shift my feet and dig in confidently with zero slip if that bow is wet. Yeah. I've I've gravitated towards shoes. I, I historically went all barefoot, but I don't have to put any sunscreen on my feet. And also, this is my opinion, I've never injured my foot. But like, man, if I hung up a toenail on an edge of the boat or something like that, man, that could ruin my trip. So it's somewhat of a personal protective piece of equipment, like a good boat shoe for me uh, as well. Flip-flops, I... I tend to trip and flip flops sometimes. I, I catch the front of that flip-flop. And so I I, I I don't even wear them that much You know, when I'm around the boat in you know, the flip-flops. Yeah. Um, because even if I'm sitting backseat, I mean, there were times when we got shots at schools where I'm casting out of the backseat, and I just much prefer shoes. Yeah. If you have a good shoe, one that's like psyched, designed for boat work, Um, you don't want a big aggressive tread pattern on your shoes. Like if we wore our trail runners, you know, that have a big aggressive, the line is going to get caught underneath that heavy tread pattern, but a slick shoe, if I caught it under my shoe, I could just shift my weight and the line would suck up right out of there because there really is no tread pattern on a boat shoe. Yours were slick sold too with that. Like it's a sailboat racing style shoe. I wore, uh, you know, this, the SIM solar flex stuff, any solar hoodie you've got, just make sure it's the lightest possible thing. Those squalor sole pants that are perforated were amazing. I mean, any little breeze would cut right through those pants and it would dry all the sweat out of my legs and I would feel nice and cool. So nod to that. Then I did not wear gloves, but all of my shirts had good kind of thumb straps so I could cover the backs of my hands from the sun, which I think is critical down there. But clothing, you just want the lightest possible stuff. I was never uncomfortable... Well, we, I got a little uncomfortable deep in the mangroves one day with you where we were getting beat by the sun. It was like noon, and we were deep in these channels with no, no breeze. wind in there, yeah. No wind, but other than that, I even at 95 degrees, I was never uncomfortable. There was always just a little air moving, uh, which was fine. So clothing, just the lightest possible stuff, but you don't need any wading boots, which is kind of nice for your gear set, uh, which was really cool. So yeah. I, I thought that packing was very simple. I mean, I brought... I think I wore those squall pants the entire week. I just wore the same pair of pants on the water every day. You know, you know, a few shirts to go out in the evening and that that kind of stuff. But yeah, gear wise, simple gear set, um, that was not a problem. Simple leader set, you don't need tapered leaders. We build them out, 24 flies. Um, my favorite fly, if I had to choose one, man, I'd say it was probably Salty Mullet. Fulling Mills one-off Salty millet, Mullet, nice little hook. What about you?
2: I like that Rio smelling salt. It had the weed guard. It has a lot of nice colors. It's got that bunny tail, and that tail did wrap around the hook a little bit uh, if you're doing a lot of blind casting.
1: Every, right. Everyone has downside. The salty mullet, it gets bit once, and that brush material kind of wraps around the gate. But yeah. That smelling salt, dude, that thing That's has a a
0: mad action. Oh, yeah. it moves good yeah I would say the smelling salt or that malzones uh, the two out black and purple I the know the talk. yeah about. Black but that's and
1: a little too odd
0: It's a little small I just like it for me I like the way that it casts. Uh,
1: I, well, will, I mean it's like it's more appropriate because one outs like the size for down there yeah. because you get lighter wire and lighter wire hooks penetrate better yeah. if you have a two or three out hook, it's very difficult to get good hook penetration on the hard mouth of a tarpon because the gauge of the steel is larger. So even the number ones, like the truffle shuffle, that little light wire hook, dude, that thing will penetrate awesome. So
0: smaller is generally better with the flies there. And then I, I gotta say that clouser was kind of fun to fish a little bit that that <laughs> that clouser, but we didn't bring any clousers, uh, but we got them handed to No us.
1: man, Roberto, the guide, he <laughs> dug those out of his ziploc bag, yeah. man, and and put that on, and I caught a fish like five minutes later. <laughs> yeah, we thought it was funny, but
0: uh, yeah, that, those smelling salts in the lighter colors seem to be the flies that were constantly grabbed by the guides. Uh, yes, and they like they, for some reason they tend to like lighter colored flies. Almost, unanimously. They didn't
1: choose black as much as I thought they would. I mean, black yeah. and red is kind of historical. The black, they didn't really reach for we, the black. We fished death. it,
2: but it was not the first one grabbed. Yeah,
1: yeah, we kind of swapped around. Uh, let's go. Uh, let's go around and just do just kind of quick hitters of hot tips for a couple minutes, and before we wrap up. But I think this is kind of if you're still listening to podcast, this is the meat that's coming at you now. <laughs>
2: Yeah, Just like we're dealing cards. Go for it, Bobby. Well, I said it once. I'm going to say it again. Fly with a weed guard. That's my my number one tip.
0: Yeah. That's a good tip.
2: Uh, Well, I could
0: talk about... My tip would be, and I think Joe actually made a, a post about this so you could watch uh, that post as well, but just landing a fish close to the boat when we were on those pangas, the first tarpon I actually ended up landing, I broke a rod on and... Partially my fault, partially just how that fish ended up acting at the boat. But when we were we were bringing that fish in to land it, it decided as it got close to the boat to take a run under the boat and my position on the boat, I wasn't actually able to necessarily swing the rod tip around the front of the boat fast enough. And I had at that point sucked all my line back up into my reel and had cranked down my drag because I was fighting the fish previous to that and I had no release. I wasn't able to give the fish any sort of line. Uh, and at that point with the angle that it was giving to the rod, I did break the rod kind of midpoint. Of course me, I was very disappointed I lost the fish and Shans goes, the fish is still on. So we ended up handlining that fish back to the boat. So after you broke the rod. After I broke the rod. So being prepared with a little bit of, Joe talks about this very well, but loosening the drag, a couple of clicks when you're going to land that fish. So if that fish, does make the decision to go on another run you have the ability to give the fish the line and not put too much strain on that rod i would say it's your oh you ship button man it's your it's your oh shit button and i went to go hit it and there wasn't one uh, <laughs> the drag was too tight <laughs> yeah, you know so um, that would be my tip is just making sure to you know practice talking through landing that fish at the boat and what that looks like before doing it
1: yeah my tip is double haul the ocean's big sometimes you got to go get them um, learn how to cast uh, long, but do so where you learn how to build line speed and shoot line. Not just, you know, t- taking your five or six foot out and be like, oh, look at me, I can cast 60 feet, where you're just picking it up and laying it down. Learn how to punch line and shoot line.
2: Um, I would also say when you're, you've are you cast in front of the school, you're stripping, the fish are coming towards you. I This was a learning moment for me. Just keep stripping. Keep that rod tip down. And I had this a number of times where the fish, we, you, you felt them and you set, uh, but you kept the rod tip down. They weren't there. And so that set's just a big strip. And so then you can just jump right back in, keep stripping. And this happened a few times where they, they came after it three times, I think. And finally on that third, that third take did I finally get them. Um, which I would not have gotten if I had I had I lifted the rod. Um, so keep the rod tip down, keep stripping. Don't get excited. Don't get. Don't start stripping real fast. Easy to do. <laughs> it's easy to do. It's easy to get excited. Uh, just keep that same speed, and uh, those fish will often keep coming back. These fish are bitey. Um, so just if if even if you think you stung them, just just keep that same speed and keep stripping, and uh, they'll probably come back for it. Don't spaz out. Yeah. Easy to do. Yeah. Easy to do. <laughs> uh
0: I would say kind of off of Joe's. Joe did this with me. This was kind of my first uh we'll call it big saltwater trip, going on an adventure with you guys and going out, if it means getting lessons if you feel like you need it, but getting some casting lessons and with the gear that you're planning on fishing, I was actually able to go and set up the rod that I fished mainly practice a cast work on some double haul work on some techniques so you feel confident in your cast before you throw it on the water and then also trying to talk through or watch videos on how to like trout fishing was before all this right like how to strip set and what that looks like it's not necessarily just a strip but you have to finish it there were a couple of times where your strips were just too shallow or the fish takes you when you're at the back of your strip and you then need to use your casting hand to pull that strip a little farther. And that's, you don't practice Without lifting. Without lifting, correct, yeah. Like a a lateral pull. Yes, and a lot of times I felt those fish would eat at the end of your strip, and you've got no more strip left, so you have to actually laterally pull with your casting hand to really set the hook. Uh, So practicing that before you're, you're in the field, I think was huge. You were ripping your
1: double haul. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, dude. I mean, yeah, you put a lot of work in. You were playing varsity on this trip. And uh, yeah, that the, the tip on practicing uh, is enormous. I would say another hot tip is like, think about your hook set is not one motion. It's a double. It's a triple set because the fish is gliding at you. And you're going to have to keep that rod tip down. You're going to have to set once. You're going to find them with your stripping hand. You're going to find them again probably, and then you're going to end up burying it by pulling directly with no rod tip left with your rod hand. Right. It's the double and triple
2: set. Yeah. Uh, I would build on that, and uh, when you're once you have successfully set the hook, um, and then those fish are going to jump, right? And you see this in those in those videos where people are fishing for big tarpon down in Florida, but uh, dropping the rod when the fish jump, give them a little bit of slack. But then also when you're fighting them, keeping the rod low. Don't bring it up right above your head like you would if you're trout fishing. Um, Keeping the rod low seemed to help them stay hooked. And then one of the things that the guides prompted me to do down there was uh, when you do get them in closer, uh, keep changing the direction on them. So you're pulling them to your right, and then you're about out of that, and then you switch them, and then you pull them to the left. So you're constantly maintaining... I guess, lateral pressure on them, uh, not pulling it straight up. It seemed like when you pulled straight up, they are more likely to come unbuttoned. So keeping the rod tip down when you're fighting them and then, uh, and then coaxing them left or right. Because these fish are going to be hot. I mean, even the little fish, they're hot. So uh, you might have to pull the rod tip back to the left and then back right and back left. I mean, it wouldn't be uncommon to do that six, six times or eight times before you could Finally, bring the rod over, bring the line over, and the guide is going to land the fish uh, on the side of the boat for you.
0: Yeah, Uh, another one you worked with with me on this a lot on the first day is when you are making your cast, keeping that line your the fly line in your left hand. For me, I was fishing with my right hand or casting my right hand, never letting that line go, so that the second that fly is hitting the water, I'm presenting a strip motion the second that bug is in the water, right? Uh, I feel like, to begin with, I would just cast and let the line or the rod take up as much line as possible and then it would hit the end of my reel and then I would have to go find the line and then start stripping. If you keep that, that fly line in your off hand, your stripping hand, so that the second that flies in the water, you can be presenting a nice strip, I felt like was more effective throughout the trip. Yeah, Steve mentioned a tip, pretty much
1: the same thing on on Instagram, on our Instagram story. So if you're listening to this, go to our Instagram profile and then click on the Campeche Tarpon story and there's some tips, kind of the back end of that. But yeah, you're talking about when you've got a big shot, you're gonna shoot some line and you just need to let it rip. So fish are moving, moving, you're shooting it to 60, 70 feet or whatever, don't relinquish your grip on the shooting line. Correct. Yeah, keep a hold of it. It's it's fun to just kind of dump it and slingshot it out there, but then that as soon as the fly hits the water, your first two strips really are just eliminating slack. Correct. And the fly is not even moving yet. Right. Um So yeah, I think that that's a worthy tip. But Steve Steve mentioned something basically similar, you know, on on Instagram. So I want to refer people back to that. See so cut kind of a visual. Tony brought this tip up. Tony and Tony Scott probably more. You know bigger tarpon than I think any of us um, he's done a lot of traveling but Tony was mentioning um, what he witnesses a lot when he's you know fishing with other anglers not he's not picking on us but is you've got to acknowledge the boat's pulling uh, pace so the boat's moving a mile an hour or two and the guides are pulling after those fish which sometimes those guides are getting after him that boat is moving you have to be, it doesn't matter how fast you're stripping. All that matters is how fast the fly is actually moving. And so there's like this net gain on the fly that you have. You might be stripping your brains out. And I I see this on Instagram where you'll get these critics that will comment like, oh my God, you're stripping way too fast. I can't even believe you hooked anything. It's like, well, the boat was moving in on the fish. So you have to really make sure that you know, your line, if it's under tension, how fast you're moving it. And I think there's some value into practicing your stripping, like even when you're not on fish, of just casting and stripping and visually watching that fly because the boat is so often moving in on the fish. Um, And then, yeah, so just pay attention to that. I like four tips that I can unpack from that, but I'll hand this off.
2: Bring pesos. Uh, I don't know how many times (laughs) we (laughs) Tip of the <laughs> podcast right there. Bring some pesos. Uh, they, they did not really accept American currency at all. Uh, when we were out for dinner, out for drinks, whatever it was, we would oftentimes have to try two or three credit cards before one would go through, even though that credit card that you tried may have worked at the previous spot. Um, it didn't seem like it was a security issue with the card, Uh, just wouldn't go through. So anyway, bring some pesos. It'll be a lot easier. Uh, The exchange rate is good. It'll just be a lot easier for you. Great, Tim. I
0: would say drink lots of water. I I can't get stressed this enough. I'm kind of like the guy who pushes water down everybody's throat because I drink a bunch. I think one day with you, I'm the like water Joe, boy, dude. You got a new <laughs> nickname, <laughs> Joe. I've peed four times and I haven't seen you pee one. Drink lots of water. I think it, especially for us, it was very hot. You don't realize it, but you're sweating quite a bit, uh, and so to drink lots of water all day, not just Modelo, not just Modelo, <laughs> no. And the guides had, did a great job of having plenty of water on the boat. I mean, I think there was plenty. So drink lots of water.
1: Yeah, another tip is uh, this true on any trip, but uh, especially when you got to get up at four forty-five a.m. But trying to make a habit of not drinking after dinner. Go have your happy hour. Go have a big dinner and stuff. But man, don't let those margaritas or the Don Julio run wild after dinner. I, I think the momentum gets going. It's easy to fall into that trap, but. And we all just love fishing so much. We want to embrace that sunrise and and be ready for you know action, especially on a short four day trip. I mean, you got to make you got to make your shots count.
2: Yep. Um, yep, that's a good one. And then um, I would also say I really enjoyed having a, a shorter rod that was good at roll casting, a good roll casting line for the mangroves. I mean, there are times you're going to be in there deep and. Um, so, you've got your rod for out in the open water that can cast far, and uh, you maybe is your preferred rod, but up in the mangroves up close, having a good roll casting line that you can kind of pop it here and there. And, um, I don't know that did you, I think maybe you did land a snook, Joe. No, yeah, I uh, bo- broke it broke off, it off. Yeah. But anyway. I mean, there are some snook in the mangroves, um, lots of tarpon in there. And so having a, a slightly different setup that's not meant for casting far uh, is, is a good one to have. With that, I would say, luckily, I didn't have to
0: do this too often, but working on a good, a good backhand cast, uh, the guides actually prompted me to do it probably more than I needed to. And these Pengas didn't have a, uh, a pulling deck, so I was able to maneuver, and they did a pretty good job of spinning the boat where you didn't have to. But having a good backhand cast, we used it a bunch in the mangroves. A lot of the times when you come up into some of those lagoons, a backhand cast was the only way to present the fly. Uh, so, so practice that before you get out there in the middle of the boat. Uh,
1: I think uh, a lot of people will we'll kind of wrap this up and just do a few concluding thoughts. But I think a lot of people think a backhand cast is easy. It is
0: It is humiliating. When when, you may do it that one day when the wind was blowing you're like, I need you to just throw a backhand cast for fun, and it went 10 feet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the wind is blowing the
1: wrong way. I mean, controlling the aerodynamics of your loop in the back cast, because we get coddled where the guides constantly set the boat up so that as a right-hander, you've got a left-to-right tailwind. And it's like, it's easy, man. You'll feel like God's gift to fly casting, man. You just launch it high in the air, and a left-to-right tailwind is a right-hander, and it just kind of lays out, and then all of a sudden... You know, the fish pop up behind you, like whack-a-mole. You know, it's like all of a sudden they're here behind you and you got to throw that, a really sharp back cast. For a long time, that was my, I mean, it still is one of the more challenging things to do, but it was a very weak part of my casting game for a long time. I would try to cack hand, I mean, I can double haul cack handed and do a lot of good things with a fly rod, but I think that is anytime you hear 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock from the guide, you have to just, you have to default to that backhand cast where, you immediately kind of pop up and shift your whole stance so that you're actually aiming a forward cast 180 degrees off so that then you can launch a backhand cast with a very aggressive haul and and punch that fly out so that you get good leader turnover and the line doesn't... If you have a big curve, like a big S curve or a big C curve in your line, you're not going to hook fish very well because even if you strip the fly and get good action, the fish is going to pull that big C curve a line straight and you're not gonna get hook penetration. Right? So like I hear people all the time, oh we I had eight grabs and jump two, those things are impossible to land. Well, it might not have been all about your hook setting or all about, you know, how you handled the jumps, you know, which there's certainly a lot of finesse to that. Maybe it's because you had, you know, you were using fifty feet of line for what should have been a thirty-five foot presentation, because you had that big radial curve in there and you get you don't get a good you don't get good hook penetration. So Backhand cast in so many ways. When your line is tight and straight, and it's a it's laser beam straight, and you connect with that fish, you're much more likely to convert those strikes and jumps to landed fish. In in my opinion, on that. Um, don't drink don't drink the tap water. That's an obvious one. Keep your mouth closed in the shower. Don't brush your teeth in the shower. You know, just be smart about your bottled water situation. Um, I avoid salads. There's a little a tip for you, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) avoid salads. None of us got sick, you know, fortunately. Um, But I have been sick in Mexico before. Um, Either, you know, it's probably ordering salads, you know, ordering too much fresh stuff. But we didn't, we ate a fair amount, like all the, a lot of the appetizers were all fresh. Nobody got sick, Mm -hmm. so nothing to be afraid of there.
2: I would say, uh, this might be a a silly one or sound silly, but uh, good line management is important you know it's so easy to be you know maybe you're pounding the mangroves they the guides pulling the boat along the mangroves you're just pounding the mangroves you're stripping the line in and it's ending up in the in the boat or sometimes it ends up in the ocean and that line can so easily get under the boat and then all of a sudden there's a pot of fish and you got to make a cast at 60 feet and your line's all up under the boat and it's hard to pull the line out so Anyway, keep, keeping good line management, um, be, being conscientious of that and not getting it tangled up on your feet or, like I say, under the boat, um, just makes for a lot easier if you can maintain that good management up front. got to keep it tight. You
0: know. And if you're a fishing partner, you can help with that scenario sometimes. It's easy to yes. see that coming, and you're like, okay, I can help manage. When you're managing a whole fly line on the boat deck, sometimes having an extra hand there is helpful
1: yeah i think let's let's talk about being a good boat partner real fast um line handling number one obviously um trade you know having a little discussion um you know we all know each other and know each other you know work together every day Uh, we know each other's tendencies nuances and social cues but if somebody is on a trip like this and they haven't met the person before I think it's worth mentioning, like, have a little discussion as you're running out, like, hey, how do you want to split up the bow time? Mm -hmm. Because in Tarpon, it's like, it's really a one fish at a time deal. Like, all the focus goes, it's a team effort to get that one person hooked up. And I think the first question is, hey, how do you want to split up time on the deck? And in all the hosted trips we've ever done, I have not heard a negative piece of feedback about sharing boat time, just because... Every, you know, the spotlight's on you. There's a lot of pressure. The guide's talking to you. Everybody's working to get you a fish. And if you're up there for 15, 20 minutes, and either one, you lost your cast and you're not performing, or two, you jump a fish or get a strike, or you just feel like the mojo's not there, you just step off the deck. Like, just be like, hey, let's rotate in, rotate out. You know, like, if you're not feeling that, the mojo when you're up there, I, I think... Being a good boat partner requires you to just jump off the deck and trade out.
3: Yeah,
2: I agree. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and then, you know, obviously if you land a fish, obviously you're going to change. Um, but maybe you jumped a couple, you hooked a couple, and you just didn't land them. They, they came unbuttoned. That's on you as the end. You might decide, hey, I jumped one. It's your turn. Or maybe you agree, hey, if you jump two, then then we're going to switch um but yeah i think that's worthwhile to have that conversation
1: yeah i think i think just a quick talk in the morning if you're fishing with a new angler and the hosted trips do a pretty good job of orienting that like this isn't an infomercial we want you to have a great trip so whether it's a hosted trip with us or you're booking Mm -hmm. on your own the nice thing about the hosted trips is if you do book as a single angler there will be an orientation where we share values that we think are worthy of a good boat partner. Everybody's kind of hearing the same message, so you you know that when we pair you up with a single angler or another single angler on a hosted trip, um, that some of this has been discussed. It's not you're not going to have to nag your boat partner, beg him for the deck. That just simply doesn't happen. Like if people yeah. are like, "Man, this is a big trip. It's all I can afford. I want to go once. Like, what if I don't get enough bow time?" I think you're going to get enough bow time. I think you're going to be very
0: happy. You You spend 30 to 45 minutes casting your nine weight over and over again. You're probably going to be looking for a drink of water and a time to step off the bow. Yep. Recharge with a fresh battery
1: and jump back up there with a vengeance. Um, But the other one is um, photography. Like being a good boat partner also requires, you don't need to video everything. We wound up with hours of really cool video of like jumping tarpon and stuff, but like Probably not gonna use it. You know what we've used the most and enjoyed the most? Really good still photos of like Mm -hmm. the situations, you know, somebody with a fish, your fishing partner casting. The still photos to me like taking a few photos of your boat partner when they maybe it's they don't know it. You're just throwing taking a good still photo of their cast, some good light, a good sunrise, and then airdropping or sharing that with your boat partner at the end of the day. I think is really it that's just good that's just good karma right there to help your boat partner capture the memories that they couldn't capture themselves. To talk about
0: phones, service, Wi-Fi, no problem down there. In Campeche, yeah, no problem. problem. Yeah. I mean you could make phone calls, texts, but the internet or the internet at the hotel was fantastic, so no problem there. I
1: thought it was every bit as fast as the internet at home. Yeah, I thought very good. I thought that city was pretty well along, man. I was I was really
2: impressed by that town. Yeah, very much so. Another good uh, boat partner tip, I guess, is when you're not up on the bow fishing, uh, maybe not every time, but sit in the middle of the boat, right? <laughs> uh, don't be that guy that's sitting on the the right side, the guide's pulling on the right side, that boat's canted over. It makes the guide's life a lot tougher to pull the boat effectively and a lot harder for the angler fishing. So be conscientious of that, and uh, everyone's going to appreciate their day a lot more.
1: Yeah, lastly, um, do the host trip with us. Um, we'll get you a, a cheat sheet, a Spanish mm-hmm. cheat sheet when you book um, or shortly after you book. The guides are wonderful individuals. They're highly skilled. They don't speak a lot of English. Well, actually, what I say is we don't speak enough Spanish. Yeah. We're in their country. Right. Um, so get the cheat sheet, and it's fun to engage. They like hearing us attempt Spanish. It's not offensive. My kids constantly think every time I speak Spanish, it's offensive. And it's like, no, it's like they want you to learn. It's a compliment to their culture and language. Um, teenagers are embarrassed about everything, but,
2: um, <laughs> but
1: we'll get you a cheat sheet. And it's kind of fun to banter with the guide a little bit, you know, and uh, talk about like just casting further closer, left, right, you know, etc. cetera. Um, so Practice your Spanish a little bit because I think it's an enriching portion of the trip beyond just beyond just sticking a few fish. There's a lot more to be gained out of these these international experiences. Man, we got in this podcast one thing we didn't even talk about yet is the Mayan Mayan pyramid experience at Edzná. That was cool, oh my gosh! So just check out the blog article below. We did a Mayan cultural experience one afternoon after fishing, which was really cool because it was only possible because we were fishing. Starting at 5 a.m., we had like a whole day ahead of us after we got off the water, um, and that was great too. But I'd say thanks so much for listening. Check the show notes for link to trip details, um, blog article, gear mentioned, that kind of stuff. Um, but I think we're out for now, uh, but we would love to take you to Campeche. Salut. Salute. Salute.